We are again in Ephesians chapter 4, finishing up the chapter this morning, Lord willing. And this morning, uh, it's... It's always striking to me how God works in His providence. Uh, the prayer of confession, if you don't know the confession of sin, I just have 52 prayers in a list by week of the year, and I just pull the next one down so I don't have any like thought, really, to be honest with you, of what prayer we're going to pray. Um, but it's fitting that that is the prayer of confession this morning. I think you'll see why as we go and... We ought to be thankful to God that He works so often in mysterious ways to draw our minds to Him. I'm going to read for us, starting in verse 17 of chapter 4 of Ephesians. This is God's Word. It is eternally true. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned in Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old man, which belongs to your former manner of life, And is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new man. Created after the likeness of God. In true righteousness and holiness. Therefore having put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbors. Do not let the sun go down. Oops. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief... No longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, so that it might give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's ask for God's help this morning. Father, we are always in desperate need for you to help us. We ask that you make my speech clear and helpful, and that you would empower it by your Spirit, and that you'd have our minds and hearts changed this morning. To be more like your son Jesus who bought us. We pray this in his name. Amen. Scripture is full of many different sorts of appeals to us to live as Christians. From beginning to end, it actually is just one massive appeal to live godly lives. And in the midst of that, finding ourselves falling very far short of living godly lives gives us the promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ to enable us to live godly lives. And so Ephesians chapter 4 has lots of different sorts of things to encourage us to live godly lives, to put off the old man, to put on the new man. We saw in verses 25 through 29 several different things. Uh, We're supposed to speak the truth because you're members of one another, so that's a motivating factor. Because you are members of one another, speak the truth. So that you don't give foothold to the devil, do not let the sun go down on your anger. 
Have something to share? Stop stealing. Build up? Speak what is good and helpful. All of those things have to do with kind of one another and ourselves in the midst of one another, and there are reasons why we ought to act like Christians. Motivating factors. Unlike the self-help movement of the last hundred years, Christianity is not a self-help movement. Our motivating factor is not so much how do I improve myself so that I myself am better. It is how do I improve others and keep from destroying them. It is the main human motivating factor in Scripture. There are very few, though they are not altogether absent, there are very few appeals directly to you to live a godly life that don't immediately turn outward. Just think of the way Jesus sums up the Ten Commandments. The first commandment is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like this, to love your neighbor as yourself. Immediately upon trying to live a godly life for the pure pleasure of it in yourself, the only way to do it is to be outwardly focused. This is why the church is so essential, so that we can practice Christianity with one another. So that is, in some way, you might say, when we, when we recite the first question of the catechism, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The main way we enjoy Him earthly-wise is through the fellowship of the saints. And so if we are doing a proper job of loving one another, we actually get to enjoy this great community and this beloved joy that happens when we are one in Christ. And then the second, or rather the first, all things for His glory, this is the second motivating factor, and it is in fact the base motivating factor for our good works. These secondary things, love one another, don't let the devil get a foothold, um, something to share, build up one another, and many, many other commands of Scripture, they rest upon this foundation that the glory of God is preeminent. It is absolute. It is foundational to how we think. And so here, the apostle gives us absolutely the core of it in the middle of these commands. So, do not, do not, do not, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now this is lots of things to us. Um, What does it mean to grieve the Spirit of God? We can have a very high view of God that kind of pulls Him out of the now. Um, It can go so far as to something called deism. Deism is the idea that God is like a watchmaker who winds up a clock and sets it going, and then just sees what happens at the end. That's the far extreme end of this. But many of us tend to go through our lives, I would say all of us tend to go through our lives, not giving much thought to how God might interact and see and feel about the now. We live in a way that denies that the Spirit could be grieved at what we do. And we can see this in... A small way. Uh, Think about yourself and the way that you act, and sometimes these sorts of phrases will pop out of your mouth. Uh, My dad wouldn't like me saying that. My mom would like me doing that. Right? 
We say these sorts of phrases all the time because we remember our parents and the things that they liked us to do, wanted us to do, achieve in life. And so we're constantly, whether we are consciously thinking about it or subconsciously thinking about it, we're thinking about our parents and whether or not they would approve of what we're doing. And some things we think, I don't care if my parents approved of me. And in other things we think, I really do care if my parents approve of what I'm doing because I think they were right. And they were good to tell me this, and I hope that they would be pleased. Many of you, most of you, don't have your parents now. Uh, They have since passed on. My parents are still living, thank the Lord. And I think about this often. My wife and I, one of the main things that happens in the evenings once the kids have went to bed is a discussion of what we should do in our parenting and in our lives. And almost inevitably, almost every evening, one of us will say, my mom or my dad would do such and such, and we either agree with it or disagree with it. But we're thinking about it. It's familial. It is family that motivates us to do many things. And so here, God appeals to us as family because we are in the Spirit of God. It's, in fact, one of the most basic things we know about the Spirit. This is in Romans chapter 8. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Does that sound like the same sort of thing? Put to death the old man, put on the new man. It's the same idea. And then this, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Sometimes people use a familial appeal, a family appeal, a fatherly or motherly appeal in a manipulative way, right? You have probably experienced this from your own parents or seen it in friends of yours, The mom or the dad will try to get the child to do something by manipulating their love for them. If you really loved me, you would do this. If you really cared about me, you would do this. And we can think, because we've seen it done badly, that it's a bad appeal in general. But appealing to your child to do something to please you is extremely good. In fact, the book of Proverbs is full of this sort of motivating factor for earthly relationships. Just a few. Chapter 10, the Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. What is Solomon doing there? He's pointing out that if you're a fool, it will grieve your mother. And you ought to think about that before you act like a fool. And it's right for you to act like that. It's right for you to think about whether or not what you do will affect your mother and your father. It's a good thing. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. It's fine. In fact, it is good to appeal to the family dynamic, the family relationship, as a motivating factor in making decisions. This morning in Sunday school, I pointed this out to the children uh, as they were, we were talking about how to find the will of God in your life. 
And I said, one thing you need to think about is how your decision will affect your family. It's true. We ought to think about it. We ought to think about it earthly and more than that, because we often do not. We ought to think about it in regards to our Father who is in heaven by virtue of the Spirit who has made us His children. Do we think about God that way? Do we often consider what we're doing in terms of Will this grieve or bring shame or bring sorrow to my Father who is in heaven by virtue of the Spirit? And I would argue most of the time that thought is so far from us that it sounds weird that I'm even saying it this morning. We do not consider minute by minute how our actions will affect the Spirit of God and whether or not He will be grieved. There was a movement when I was in middle school and high school. It's probably still around. It's called What Would Jesus Do? It was abused and misused a lot in the 90s and early 2000s. But that question is a legitimate question. Why is it legitimate? Because this is the way Jesus thought all the time. I only do the things that please my Father. He said it all the time. Whatever you see me doing is only what my father has told me to do. All the time. The family dynamic of obedience to God is absolutely essential to our obedience as Christians. And if we stop at just thinking about how our actions will affect each other, we fall short of the Christian ideal of obedience. Lots of people can act in ways that benefit other people, and feel very good about themselves. In fact, that is the majority of people who do good things. They feel very good because they've benefited someone else. They started a a charity. They run a homeless shelter. Uh, Yesterday I was reading about uh, Seattle and the homeless problem they have, and they have tent cities out there. And so now the city is going to provide pods. They're like semi-permanent dwelling places. They're basically building homeless shelters in the city. And they feel very good about this, but they have not given any thought by reading the article and understanding what these people are thinking. They have not given any thought of what any of this does in light of what God thinks. They have not considered God at all in their actions, whether or not it would please God or grieve God. And this is not me making a statement on whether or not we should have tents or pods for the homeless. This is simply me saying they are not thinking like Christians at all, because they have not considered the Spirit of God in what they do. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Think about now your own relationships, both to other people in your family and to your parents and your other relatives. There is a difference between when you made a mistake or when someone in your family makes a mistake or does us something terrible and sins in some grievous way, And when the guy down the street does it, one of them causes you absolute grief in your heart and perhaps horror at the sin. The other doesn't touch you in a grievous way. You can read or watch about many different people doing many bad things and you are not grieved in the same way it would be if it was your brother or your son or your mother. But the minute it's your family... It's a different emotion. 
than just knowing something evil happened. It's grief that this person could do such a thing that you know and you love. Our Father is grieved when we do these things. Any of these things that Paul here lists for us, right? Speaking falsely, being angry and sinning, thieving, corrupting talk, and then afterwards, bitter, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. They grieve our Father. They grieve the Spirit. It should matter to us. It should matter a lot to us. In fact, this is the thing that distinguishes Christianity from not Christianity. Lots of people can do lots of things that are quite nice and helpful. But if they are not considering whether or not the Spirit of God is pleased or grieved, they are not Christian. And it's not a Christian activity. There's also this appeal that is made here. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There, is a, there are two great promises given here. One is that the Holy Spirit of God makes us one, puts us into the family of God. And He does it in such a way that it's sealed. This is important for us to think about when we sin. It's really important that we do not attempt to make it seem as though we have never grieved the Spirit of God. It's very important for us not to do that. It's very tempting to think, well, I have never grieved the Spirit. Or perhaps I have not grieved the Spirit this week or this morning. If you have not thought about the Spirit in your actions, you have likely grieved Him. Because He ought to be prime of first importance. And so if we go through our days trying to show that we have not grieved the Spirit, we, one, were lying, and two, we actually throw off the whole meaning of what the promises of God are for. If we have not grieved the Spirit, then why does it matter that He sealed us? If we have nothing to be worried about. If we've not grieved Him, then we should not be worried about our eternal redemption because there's nothing to worry about. If, if we have not done something in which the God of the universe is grieved over us, if, if we have nothing to come to God with, then we are fit as a fiddle. And it does not matter that it's a sealed promise by the Spirit because we've kept it. We've managed it. We've done it. It's important that the Spirit sealed us for the day of redemption. Because none of us has lived a life free of grieving the Spirit. We should not work hard to prove that we don't grieve the Spirit. We should work hard to prove that we believe despite the fact that we have done things that ought to cast us out of the family of God that He sealed us, and it can't be done. 
That's the hope of the gospel. It's not, I have never grieved the Spirit. It's, I have grieved the Spirit. And despite my grieving Him, I cannot be lost. Because His promise is absolute. It is true. It is sure. It cannot be undone. If you remember, this is not a new theme for Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. Chapter 1, verse 11. In Him, in God, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the firstborn to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the earnest money, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. That only matters if we actually sin. If the Christian is saved and never sins again, the promise of the seal of the Spirit is a meaningless promise. It has no, no worth, no value. But it is valuable. It is eternally valuable. It is actually the only thing of value for the Christian in the moment when he sins. He is the way by which we cry, Abba, Father, and He is the one who keeps us from being cast eternally from the Father. And it's because of Him that we do not perish eternally. Not because you have kept the law, but because He is absolute in His salvation. He will not be undercut and underdone. Think about it this way. Most of us have bought and sold houses at least once in our life. Earnest money, the money given from the buyer to the seller, is a small sum. But it says a few things. It says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to buy this house. But did you know there's an extra part of the contract that we don't think about if we're honest people very often? It's that the contracts that are written today for real estate say, as long as it's in the same condition in which I put the earnest money down. If you are selling your house and you go through with an axe and you chop holes in the wall and you rip all the copper wire out and you break the floors out and you take the toilet and you remove the plumbing... The guy who put the earnest money down gets his money back. He gets to say to the bank and the realtor, hey, this contract says same condition. They destroyed the house. I'm not buying a destroyed house. I agreed to pay this much money for an intact house in this condition. You, it's no longer in that condition. Think about the difference now between the earnest money that we give for a house and how if we destroy it, it's no longer saleable in our own Christian lives. We do sin, and by sinning, we do those sorts of things. We do take an axe to the wall. We, we do not deliver ourselves in the same condition that we were bought in. And the only improvement on the house 
is by God himself. Now think about that. You have a house that is you. The Spirit comes and He says, I'm going to purchase you for all eternity. And you're in whatever condition you're in. Every improvement that you have made from that point on as a Christian is because God has done it in you. He has improved the house. It's not because you put more money into the house. It's because He Himself poured Himself into building you into something better. And at the same time, you going behind, and he has put in a new bathroom, and it looks beautiful. And you come in with a chisel, and you chip all the, the stuff off the wall, right? So my, my, my house has uh, tiles that have been painted in the bathroom, and I have six children. Now, painted tile, if you don't know, does not do very well, even in the best circumstances, because tile is very slick, and it's hard to paint. It's easy to peel off. So if you can imagine what my bathrooms look like having lived there for two years next to the toilet where the children sit, there's just peeled paint, right? They just peel the paint. They're actively working to make my house look like trash. I love them! And eventually, someday, I will probably fix the peeled paint in that bathroom. Because I am their father, and I love them. And there is nothing they can do to my house that would change that. Now, you, who have the Spirit of God, you grieve Him. You peel the paint. You come after the new fixed stuff He did and built into you, and you tear it down, and you don't do it, and you are bitter, and you do grieve Him. Now you could at that point go, no, 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 my house looks pretty good compared to when it was bought. Look at all the stuff that's happened to this house. Look at how much better I am. And you can point to that as though that's your assurance that God's going to keep buying you, going to make it to the end. You can go, hey, when he bought me, I was a fixer-upper. Now I'm a three-bed, two-bath, nice-looking house on the corner, got a nice yard and a fence. I'm worth buying now, even if I did break the fence a little bit. You can look at your life like that. But that is not the Christian way to look at your life. The Christian way to look at your life is, I broke the fence and grieved my father, and he still keeps me. And he has promised to keep me, no matter how many times I grieve him. Therefore, therefore, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Our motivating factor at the base level for Christian love is knowing that we were bought and sealed by the Spirit of God, and nothing we do can undermine it or undercut it or break it until the last day. Now, let's talk then, just briefly, about how often you should think about whether or not you grieve the Spirit. I've mentioned it many times, that we don't think about it often. This should be paramount, the first thing we think. And it's very difficult to do that. 
When we have been bitter, when we have acted with malice, when we have anger, when we have spoken falsely, we have many things that we think of first, and most of them are us. Me. My reputation, my thoughts, whether or not I will be perceived or forgiven or how I can work through this. And then if we can work past being self-righteous and be a little bit humble, then we begin to think of how our sin has affected everybody else and how we might rectify a few relationships. And then if we finally get through that, then perhaps we will think about God and His glory. It ought to be completely reversed. This is, in fact, the story of Scripture when David, in his sin, is confronted. And David has destroyed his own life, the life of a woman, had a man put to death and erased him from the history books, who now has no heir, and has involved his captain of the guard in the murder. And Nathan comes and says, you are the man. He writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in my sin did my mother conceive me. And behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop. And I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David, when he was rightfully convicted of his sins, thought first about the offense he had given to the holy God of Israel and the dire circumstance he was in, that if God did not preserve him in mercy, his spirit would be removed and he would die in iniquity. We can put the promises of God on such a pedestal such a prominent place that we actually make grace worth nothing. Because when we sin, we immediately go, oh, don't worry, God is gracious. He has sealed me for the day of redemption. It's not that big of a deal. That's not biblical and it's not Christian. Our sins should be grievous to us because we have grieved the Spirit of God. And they should be like that all the time. We should always be considering how unbelievable it is that even despite our worst and best efforts to undo it, God is still merciful to us. It should be on us, in us, thinking, don't take your spirit from me. Don't take your spirit from me. Don't leave me. 
If you look through the Psalms and much of the Old Testament, there are refrains that just repeat and repeat and repeat. Help me. Do not leave me. Be with me. Why is that such a repetitive thing in the Bible? Because the people who are Christians, who are believers, were desperate that God would not abandon them despite what they had done. It's not that they didn't believe in the promise of God. It's that they knew their sins were horrific and ought to be enough to cast them away. And they are enough to cast us away. And it's only when we're at that point where we are with David saying, cast me not away from your presence and restore your spirit to me. That is where the greatest change of heart occurs. It's where the church is at its most vulnerable and most powerful. Acknowledging sin, trusting in grace. We will not be united as a church locally, suddenly, you know, broadly, if we are dishonest about how we grieve the Spirit. There is no hope for unity in the Spirit if we don't need the Spirit. And we do need the Spirit. To sum up, we were, we were purchased by God in His Son, Jesus Christ, in order that we might live like Him, holy lives, pleasing to God. We were supposed to live as though God is our Savior, right? Verse 24, put on the new man created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. But then we are confronted continuously with the fact that we have not put on the new man. We have, in fact, fallen back in love with the old man. We like his ways. This should put us in desperate, humble reliance on the Spirit of God. And so I encourage you this week, today, confess to God how you've grieved Him. Don't, don't think it's your job to come to God with a clean slate. It's not. He cleans it. He redeems you anyway. That is the point of grace. And spend your time each day meditating upon the Spirit of God, and how you might please Him so that you do not grieve Him. This is the work of the Christian. It cannot be done by an unbeliever who has no spirit dwelling in him.